0: Hi, this is Tom Darling, your host for Conversations with Classic Boats. Welcome you to the bonus episode of our history of America's first development class, the 6-meter, the class that launched a 100 competitors in the interwar years, that is, between World Wars I and II. This was the class that nurtured the top U.S. sailors of the first half of the 20th century that introduced America to team racing and left a legacy of the most beautiful boats, designed by the most talented designers and sailed by the very best sailors. This is the greatest hits of the sixes bonus episode. And it all had its origins at a classically architected yacht club, high above Oyster Bay, which even today is close to a pilgrimage site for this exceptional class of boat. That is Salwanaka Corinthian Yacht Club. 150 years old here in 2021. Now, of all the boats on that club's wall, which is most memorable for me? It has to be Goose. All that history of winning, plus the most unusual presentation of an iconic design on the wall of any yacht club. You may have seen it in the picture in the gallery in the previous episode, Part 3. Of all the designers whom do I most remember? Owen J. Stevens. Of the sailors, there are so many, but my personal favorite has a particularly unique thing about him. Who is the six-meter sailor at the top of my list? Let's take a quiz. Remember, we had a quiz in the second episode on the Harrisoff Elarian, and the question is, name the only piece of modern racing equipment named after a person. Got it? Too easy, right? Of course. The Cunningham. Named for the one and only Briggs Cunningham. Six-meter race, 12-meter pioneer, first and foremost from the Pequot Yacht Club in Southport, Connecticut. I learned about Briggs Cunningham from Carlton Mitchell's book, Summer of the Twelves, and also in Carlton Mitchell's photo archives on the summer of 58. In tab 54 of the Mitchell photo collection, I saw a chiseled, burly, compact gentleman wearing a Columbia sweater, the boat, not the college, and sitting to leeward, where I always, always told my sailing class students not to sit, never sit to leeward. No foul-weather gear, not a hair out of place, looking quite like the Prometheus statue perched above New York City's Rockefeller Center skating rink. We will return to Briggs, as he builds his reputation in the six meters from his first 1920s boats through the between-the-years of competing here and around the world. But first, our partners, Windcheck Media with Windcheck Magazine, covering the waterfront from New York to Cape Cod. Pick up a copy of the latest March issue in your club or Marine outlet. You can read part two of Finisterre and Fidelio, the SNS Twins. Great photos. You can see it all on their website at windcheck.com. And keep an eye out for the Connecticut Boat Show at the end of April. We'll have a conversations table there at Essex and hope, after this long, long time of remote communication, to meet some of our loyal subscribers. Come in April, we'll have a surprise for you. And of course, our good friend Mad Martha at Team One Newport. Watch those entertaining YouTubes. But seriously, Team One has all the latest gear for you coming out of frostbiting or piloting your radio sailing boat, chomping at the bit to have a normal summer of racing, cruising, or just plain sailing. Check it out on the website. See what they have for you on the Friday night email and Sunday morning bargain blasts. It's team1newport.com and don't miss joe cooper's interview in this month's win check with martha the pride of huntington high school 1978 go blue devils now remember the picture of the 1931 british american cup trophy one of the most extraordinary i've ever seen a silver six meter encased in glass on a raised base looking out south towards sagamore hill the estate of the 21st President of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, whose relatives and neighbors were early founders of Sawanaga. When it came to yacht racing, Teddy was really more of a horse guy, and he had died in 1919 and never really was a sailor like his Uncle James down on Cove Neck. But Sagamore Hill and Sawanaga are still the bookends to the entrance to Oyster Bay from Cold Spring Harbor. And of all the names on that BAC trophy, Briggs Cunningham is the one with the sailing story that intrigued me the most. Briggs Cunningham was born in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1907, a year before Owen Stevens was born in the Bronx. His family was the chief financier of Procter & Gamble. The founder was his godfather. He had two avocations, boats and cars. He may have won more boat races than car races over his career, but the tally was probably pretty close. As we said in the opening, he is the only sailor that I know that has a piece of sailing hardware named specifically for him, the Cunningham. I've never heard anyone say, trim that Melgis or ease that Elstrom. Hey, don't sit on that Jobson. He was a driven sailor and an obsessed car racer. He was as proud of his many 24 hours of Le Mans appearances as he was of his sailing winds. He was in the seat of a racing car at age 56. Can you believe it? His sailing career started as an undergraduate at Yale in the dawn of college sailing. That probably warrants a podcast episode of its own. They sailed intercollegiately then in eight meters and S-boats. In 1924, his home club became the Pequot Yacht Club. Southport, Connecticut. He owned and sailed stars as a teenager. The picture that comes up on Google for the website of his beloved boat, Lucy 2, is of a young Briggs in what appears to be a raccoon coat. That was the whirling 20s after all. In 1928, coming fresh out of college, he came on the scene as part owner of an 8-meter with his future father-in-law, F.T. Bedford, a Standard Oil Air. Nineteen days before the crash of 1929 started, he married his partner's daughter, Lucy Bedford, whom he would always claim taught him how to sail and was a better sailor than he was. From there, the six-meter became his ride. In 1929, he bought the crane-designed Ekaba and renamed her Lucy, of course, for his bride. In 1930, he barnstormed Europe and returned as one of the four members of the 1931 British-American Cup team. His 1931 Lucy II, conceived at the peak of Clinton Crane's artistry, was the pace car for six meters for some time. See the picture in the gallery. She was winning races well into the 1950s. Today, Lucy's owner is Matt Brooks, who collects vintage boats the way... Briggs Cunningham accumulated a museum of race cars. Witness Matt's restoration and campaigning of Durade worldwide. The pictures in the photo section tell the tale of the tape for Lucy too. U.S. fifty-five builder Nevins, length overall thirty-seven feet, length on the waterline twenty-three feet, beam six feet, a long six, big overhang tall rig. This was really the prototype for the third generation six meter. Briggs switched Owen Stevens for fun, the boat fun, in 1936 and then to a boat named Lulu but one feels that his heart was always with Lucy too. In my research I found many well-documented sixes but none with as extensive a website as lucy.org. Check it out. The Cunningham legend persisted into the 12-meter era when he was chosen as helmsman for Columbia in 1958. Carlton Mitchell's account of the summer of the 12s captures that drama, particularly when Corny Shields' heart attack put the wheel into Cunningham's lap to skipper the first America's Cup in the 12-meters. Just a big six Briggs probably thought... In that Carlton Mitchell photo, sitting to leeward in his Columbia sweater and hat, not a stitch of foul weather gear to be seen? The legend is, after polishing off the tubby scepter in four straight, he went straight to the payphone and called his race manager at Watkins Glen, where his driver had just won the main race. As he was returning to his sailing crew, a reporter approached and commented, gee, Briggs, that was a fine race. To which Briggs replied, cards on his mind. That's what I hear. I wish I could have seen it. That's a total professional. Sixes of legend in the 1930s were increasingly from the board of Owen Stevens. First in 1938, the breakaway goose, to be followed ten years later by a sister ship, Lenoria. Gin, picture of which is in the gallery for part three, came right along the same time as Goose. These second-generation Stevens boats were shorter, beefier boats. Lower rigs, but with that same S&S slippery quality through the water, and a fifth gear of boat speed. When Goose came out in 1938, as we said, Briggs Cunningham had already moved from his beloved Lucy to Fun. Alas, Goose and Cunningham would never collaborate. That's a shame. There was uncertainty in the air in 1938. Would there be another sailing season, or maybe two? Would there be time to build another new boat? In the world and on the water, there was great uncertainty. And looking ahead, this was to be the September of the Hurricane of 38. All of that aside, the six-meter class was at the end of a building wave. Today, we might have called it an, quote, arms race, unquote. But it was keeping a depression-bound boatyard industry hard at work before the war filled their order book for minesweepers and patrol boats to stock Nazi subs. Going into the summer of thirty-eight, all was right with the world. On Sunday, June 26, 1938, a new Six raced for the first time, a boat that was to become immortal in Swannika and Six Meter history. This was Goose, designed for George Nichols. That day, she finished his third to Totem, the looter's boat, which, driven by Mike Topa a few years back, we dueled with in our Alarion in Nantucket's Upper House Cup. And fun, as we said, built for Briggs Cunningham. And Goose did not win her first race, until July 10th, when she defeated Totem, Jinn, the contemporary to Goose, which was the Olympic runner-up in 1949, Saga, along with Starwagon, which was a self-designed craft of the Witten clan. In trials for the Cup Series in midsummer, Goose won three of four and was selected to defend the Scandinavian Gold Cup over fun. Briggs Cunningham could not have been happy about that. The summer of 38 was the summer of Goose, reminiscent of the summer of the Yacht America back in 1851. A legend was born. The original Goose had some undisclosed construction issues and had to be pulled for repairs. The word came back to Owen Stevens, we need the plans. Now, designer secrets were serious IP. When Goose was rebuilt, under somewhat mysterious conditions, the owner specified that the work was to be done at the A.E. Loader Yard in Stamford. When the looter's work crew asked for the line drawings to Goose, Olin naturally balked. Give my IP to the competition. No way, Jose. As we've mentioned a couple of times in the last couple of episodes, The evidence of that reconstruction of Goose is memorialized by the startling appearance of a particularly odd wall hanging on the south side of the Swanica-Corinthian Yacht Club fireplace in their Stanford White 1892 structure recognized in the National Historic Register. We've mentioned it before. It's a six-meter stern, says Goose, hung on the wall like the hunting trophies preserved in Teddy Roosevelt's library at Sagamore Hill across the harbor. What other boat has its former stern taken off in between series to optimize speed, committed to the wall next to the fireplace of a historic yacht club? Goose is also memorialized by some extraordinary models. Our good friend Peter Taylor tells the story of what we saw to be the most beautiful model of Goose. Several years ago, a sailing friend of mine, who knew of my interest in Goose, came across the website of a boat model maker in Paris, Yves Gagné. Amidst images of Eve's many precise, detailed scale models, my friend noticed one of Goose. He immediately contacted me, and I contacted Yves. It turns out that Yves had seen some of Morris Rosenfeld's iconic images, as well as other historical artifacts of Goose and decided she would be a worthy representation of the era's best six meters. And indeed, Eve's hand did her Sparkman and Stephen's lines proud. Whether you view her in real life or in model, the myths associated with Goose abound. See the photos in the photo section, the gallery of this episode. Today, she lives along with Lenorio, her s s companion, Today in a virtual six-meter museum on Bainbridge Island west of Seattle. There, Mr. Peter Hoffman has collected the best and brightest of the sixes, and they appear occasionally in West Coast Six Meter events. The website of the West Coast Six Meter Association documents a recent world, 2017, held near Vancouver. If you Google Lipton Cup 6 meters 2017, you can enjoy a great selection of pictures of traditional and modern sixes. We have some shots in the gallery of that action, which feature a guest helming appearance by the one and only Dennis Connor. So, what is the state of the sixes today? What is the state of the modern fleet of the six meter? The Six Meter Archives, thanks to the Fine International Class website, backed by Matt Brooks, is a motherlode of classic maritime images. The site and its English archivist seek information on the estimated 1,400 sixes, built from all over the world and in all eras. I took uh, some time with the numbers, along with the notes on the website, and analyzed the current population of the Six Meter world, Along the following lines, built since 1907, 1,550, moderns built, 101, classic reproductions, three. Another way to look at it, classic sixes built, 1,348, disappeared in one way or another, 1,023, equals. Classics thought to exist today, 325. Whereabouts unknown, 9. Out of the water, 25. Status unknown, 122. Sailing or racing, 135. That's about the same number as are still being sailed in the IOD class around the world. And it's the only class that I've encountered with a lost-and-found section on its website. The Six has its own version of Antique Roadshow going on at any time. The addition of the most recent newsletter, authored by Tim Street, who has penned a short history of the class, available through the Six Meter Class website, seeks to investigate and track the status of the remaining international Sixes population. Here's the way Tim Street's Numbers work. Lost, none. Found, seven, including boats in South Africa, New Zealand, Austria, and France. For most readers, the greatest attention is paid to the section entitled Restorations and Replicas. Every one of the boats we've talked about has had at least one and usually several reconstruction procedures. Some of them are reversing the effects of time where someone bought a 6 and turned it into a pocket cruiser or a day sailor. Originally, a vintage 6 provided the raw material for a nifty weekender add a deckhouse, some interior bunks, and voila, you have an economic coastal cruiser. Today's madcap, seen in pictures in the last part three, is a good example of being reborn on the original plans from a pedestrian cruising configuration. You can go back to part two and hear that story. The names and the designers are classic and familiar to you now. The details of the work are spelled out as if they were boats coming off a disabled list. Rehab ta- it takes time, and it takes money. What's even more interesting is how many of these reborn boats I have actually encountered coming back on the traditional wooden boat racetrack. Totem was a good example. Here was the rebuilding report in the mid-2010s. Cherokee, a spec replica of the s 1930 design to be built by IYRS in Newport. Jill, remember the BAC trophy, 1931? Again, a rebuild of the Stevens 1931 design. Madcap, Refastening and a new deck for Frederick Hoyt 1924 design by IYRS in Newport. It was actually done first in 2008 prior to the 2009 Worlds by a Rhode Island syndicate headed by Tom Fair. We have shots of Madcap in every one of our galleries and on the Instagram. Totem, rebuild of Billy Luter's 1930 design by the Concordia Company. Oh boy, I remember those guys. They beat us in Olarian A26 in the Opera House Cup after sailing straight from Newport to make the race on time. That's classic and hardcore. 24 hours plus in a six sailing through the night across Rhode Island Sound and up and over Vineyard and Nantucket Sounds. And the list goes on. With the last page of pictures of, quote, candidates for the years ahead, unquote, come a stream of high quality boats with good racing potential. Eager six meter freaks read the website and newsletter like a day trader looks for stock tips. But I add, caveat be prepared to spend serious money. Roll the tape forward now to the 21st century. A world championship for sixes is like Woodstock for classic boat freaks. It's the Grateful Dead meets oak, cedar, and epoxy. Yes, the sixes came together 12 years ago in Newport. The classic six regatta of the century was held in Newport. Shortly after Newport's annual Museum of Yachting Classic Yacht Regatta in September, Harry Anderson, who passed away recently, was the former commodore of Swanica and the New York Yacht Club and sailed on a six, goose to be specific, as a youth. There was only one boat for him in the lineup, one that he had not seen since the late 1940s when he crewed on it. It was goose as described in the 91309 times article. The 1938 International 6 meter of legend where Anderson had spent his summers grinding winches upwind from cramped below decks and playing the shoot downwind. Harry's quote sounded like the grinders on today's AC75s. quote in my school days, in the 1930s, our job was to stay below and crank as fast as we could. All we could see was sky looking up from the deck. Another vintage sixes fan, Henrik Anderson, who had brought his Eurochamp, the 1938 Gin, summed it up more than a decade ago. Gin was an s work for Henry S. Morgan, JPM's son. It was Gin that brought back the Sawanica Cup to Oyster Bay in 1947. The oldest cup in America was then defended in 1957 by Goose, which was the last six meter to race for the Sawanica Cup. Fitting that the first match race cup initiated in America occur just before the restart of the America's Cup in 12 meters in 1958. Henrik Anderson summed up the eternal attraction of the sixes in the golden age and today. Quote, I am attracted to the beauty more than the racing. If you ask a four-year-old to draw a boat, it looks like a six. Everything is in right proportion. It's what a beautiful boat should look like. Now I want to come back to Bainbridge Island, which is a commuter island suburb across Puget Sound from Seattle where I can only describe what, what I see in pictures as a senior care facility for famous Sixes. This is a private boatyard dedicated to bringing back the great Sixes. We should all recognize the contribution of the Seattle family, the Hoffmans, in the conservation of these thoroughbred classics. In 2004, the Classic Six Meter Newsletter, number 10, edited by Tim Street, reported the following, quote, This year, the excitement has been that three top-class S&S boats have been recovered and are under major rebuild. These are US-81, Goose, perhaps Olin-Stevens' greatest boat, built in 1938, which is under careful restoration by Peter Hoffman in Puget Sound. US-80, Gin, a near-sister to Goose, but with a leaner forefoot. In North America, Peter Hoffman's father was the one who got involved in Six Meters at a time when they had lost their popularity. Boats were being left sitting in marinas or stored in backyards. Some of them may have, may have been saved from becoming a winter's firewood or just left out in the open to rot. Several were cut up for firewood or for the lead keel, To be sold. The yachting world can thank the Hoffmans for keeping the heritage alive. In the 2000s, they acquired seven unwanted and unloved sixes, as well as the great Lenoria and Goose. So if you see a six on your own, take a shot, send it to me. I'll make sure it gets to the world-class archivist, and I'll be sure to send a copy to Peter Hoffman, Bainbridge Island, Seattle, state of Washington. So, we've come a long way, from 1890 to the present. Remember to go back to all four episodes of this series and listen and re-listen. That's really the beauty of the podcast medium. It's like the golden age of radio. Sit back, relax, take it at your own pace. Conversations with Classic Boats is on demand on whatever device you choose. The recent New York Times section on the media industry shows the fascination with narrative audio, a.k.a. podcast, and compares it to television in 1949. Interesting. But relax, listen, and enjoy. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or the website at conversationswithclassicboats.com. And keep those suggestions and photos coming. In the next months, we hope we'll be moving towards a, quote, normal sailing summer. We're going to diversify a bit in response to to listeners' suggestions. We're going to bring in our friends in the power area, in the vintage boats. We're going to look at big and small. We're going to go to some new regions of the country that have been inaccessible, during this difficult last year. We'll be profiling a historic rival of two megaboats, one from SNS, one from Harrishoff. See if you can guess their identity. We think you'll be absorbed in the mystery of what we call Hickman versus Hunt in search of the origins of what America's most iconic design, the Boston Whaler, brought to the 1950s and look forward to a couple of new podcast formats. First, with our next episode, an open mic with the Brothers team that changed late 20th century popular boating. You will get excited about how excited they get. And for spring, hope springs eternal. We'll take a road trip at last, a June pilgrimage back to my college stomping grounds, Barnegat Bay with an illustrious set of characters, some of whom are a very big deal in the sailing world today. How many of us have seen the America's Cup through the eyes of Beachwood's Gary Jobson? Today, it's Andy Campbell, son of Billy Campbell, from across the Toms River, who was flight engineer for the U.S. AC-75. And we'll see and talk with my old friend Willie DeCamp, the professor of Maniloking, so dedicated to his Save Barnegat Bay cause. So, as we move to summer, take precautions, cross your fingers. Now, a few corrections from prior episodes. This one from Finisterre and Fidelio. Jess Terry from Noank, Connecticut, corrects us that Carlton Mitchell's first boat carib was the former Malabar 12, not 10. Malabar 10 was a schooner. 12 was a catch. Thanks, Jess. Appreciate it. Great to hear from the winner of the Heavy Air 2018 Opera House Cup. He reminds me that the Alden design fleet, like his boat, has many candidates for the podcast. Maybe it'll be his Abigail. For those of you who have asked, the opening music is Sir Eric Coates' On the Sleepy Lagoon, played in the 1950s by the BBC Orchestra. Our closing music, Sea Chanty, is way ahead of the current mini craze of that genre. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Classic Boats. Thanks to Peter Taylor and Hugh Jones for their participation. And come back and listen to the podcast that talks to boats. This podcast was produced by Ned Darling in Peacham, Vermont. Check him out at LinkedIn for your next media production. Stay safe and keep someone else safe if you can. Fair sailing. This is your host, Tom Darling, saying thanks for listening to Conversations with Classic Boats. And we'll roll the old chariot along We'll roll the old chariot along We'll roll the old chariots along, and we'll all hang on behind. And a drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of blood do us any harm. And we'll all hang on